Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Seltzer Kings Podcast Network in cooperation with Fast Eddie's Podcast Hut present Spooktacular 2020. A celebration of the macabre and the infantile. The horror. The Whoa, 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 whoa. No, Gavin. I did not suggest that you could get away with voting if you really wanted to. Don't be saying stuff like that. I'm not going to jail for you. Ass. The following podcast contains... Like F you and, and, and S and stuff like that, and then MF and stuff like that. Those are not... Those are... Those, those are... Um, they're not, they're not words. Those are names of spirits. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you spent two hours in the freezing night chasing a lighthouse, what the hell were you thinking? I am your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 285, Rindlesham Part 2, Bentwaters Boogaloo, where we shine a light on what really happened in the Rindlesham Forest UFO incident. Spooktacular 2020 concludes right now, if you just stay tuned. Well, what the hell are you thinking, podcast, is brought to you by the Suffolk Lighthouse Preservation Society. Dedicated to keeping lighthouses intact for all the students of the Suffolk Lighthouse Academy. Yeah, we know that global positioning and radio have rendered having a big old light in the dark easily hidden by the constant fog and rain along the Channel Coast seem a bit silly, but have you ever seen a bleeding lighthouse all lit up and spooky in the night? It's marvellous. The Suffolk Lighthouse Preservation Society urges you to donate and lobby your politicians to keep lighthouses open and lit because honestly... Being around people scares us, and if you ever met any of us who work in a lighthouse, you would be scared of us. Being, us being in that lighthouse is probably best for everyone involved. Besides, who keep the Yanks fumbling around in the dark like we could? The Suffolk Lighthouse Preservation Society. Think of all the photos you took. Alright, Beatrice. There was no alien. Flash of light you saw in the sky was not a UFO. Swamp gas from a weather balloon was trapped in a thermal pocket and refracted the light from Venus. Well, wait, wait a minute. So you just flash that thing, it erases our memory, and you, you just make up a new one? A standard issue neuralizer. And that weak story is the best you can come up with. There used to be this joke that went, if you put an Air Force cop in a room with nothing but three ball bearings, he would break one, lose one, and steal the other. Thank me for my service. This is entirely unfair and utterly mean-spirited, but not exactly wrong. I said last week, and I'll say again, that being an Air Force cop is a really fucking boring job, and you find ways to fill up the empty hours on your shift just any way you can. Sometimes the thing you find are not uh, smart or legal. Like the two guys, and it's always two guys, who decided they were going to tear down the engine on their patrol vehicle one night only not to be able to get it back together in time for shift change. 
Or there was a young airman on the back gate who decided he would pass his long night doing a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle only to have the base commander pull up and wait to have his ID checked in the middle of the night, see the young fellow, notice what he was doing, get out of his car, step inside the gate shack, and start handing the oblivious young airman pieces of the puzzle that matched what he was working on. I know that might sound funny to you, but I assure you the base commander wasn't laughing and neither was the airman when he lost his stripe a few weeks later. That was you, wasn't it? It was not me. I don't like doing jigsaw puzzles. Why is it like this? Well, Air Force cops are young people, and young people sometimes make bad choices. And a lot of the time, they will try to lie their way out of those bad choices. Like the young airman who was stone-cold busted by a sergeant coming out of his girlfriend's dorm room, sweaty, disheveled, trying to get his uniform buttoned up and his gun belt back on at the same time. That young airman brazenly told his sergeant that he was desperately needing to take a shit, and this was the closest place he could find to get a toilet. That had to be you. <laughs> yeah, it was. Thank God my girlfriend was listening to the door and had time to duck in the bathroom and light a couple of matches to make it smell like someone had taken a dump. Sometimes the lies work. Not because they're believed so much, it's... Uh, it's just less work to accept the lie than finding out a truth that you really don't want to find out because if you found out, it would be even more work on your part. And sometimes Air Force cops will even engage in elaborate cover-ups to hide their participation in activities or lies. Like the time someone got very drunk and broke a shit ton of drop ceiling tiles in their barracks hallway, resulting in a destruction of government property report being filed that night. That airman broke into a condemned barracks, stole a bunch of ceiling tiles in the middle of the night, and replaced every single one of the damaged tiles before the first sergeant could get around to coming over to investigate the incident and take that dumbass into custody for doing the deed. Everyone knew who did it, but now there was no evidence that anything was done or of how it might have been undone. Wow, you really are a piece of work. Those are just the stories I'm comfortable telling you that I know the statute of limitations has ran out on. All of this brings me back to the night of December 26th through the 28th, 1980s, in the Rendlesham Forest just outside the perimeter of RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge. If you haven't heard part one of the Rendlesham Forest incident, I'm not going to recap it all for you. Your job is to listen to the shows, so go back and check that out. But if you need a quick TLDR, just go with... I'm going to treat it like a UFO sighting. I will, however, recap our cast of characters. You've got Airman First Class John Burroughs, who first saw the lights. Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston. And Airman First Class Cabin Sack, who saw the lights in the woods on the 26th and walked into the woods to investigate that night. Penniston and Burroughs claimed to have seen an actual craft. And you have Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt, the deputy base commander who investigated the evidence of the, of the landing on the 26th, later on the 27th and 28th, recorded what he described as landing impressions and radiation, and he also made a little tape of him chasing a UFO around in the woods on the morning of the 28th, and subsequently wrote a memo detailing the entire incident for the U.S. Air Force, the Royal Air Force, and the United Kingdom Ministry of Defense. Officially, whatever happened in that forest over those couple of nights was investigated and deemed a nothing burger. But unofficially, it has become one of the biggest UFO cases in all the annals of ufology. All because an Air Force cop got caught fucking around, lied about it, and then tried to cover it up. How do you know this? I don't know. 
But when you start picking at the story, it's the explanation that best fits the facts as they were established in 1980, which is the only version of the story that can be substantiated in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Let's start with Herman Burroughs. Being an airman first class, John Burroughs would have no more than three years in the service, assuming he hadn't been busted down in any ranks, and he hadn't, and perhaps could have as little time as 18 months. It's 3 a.m. the day after Christmas, and chances are Burroughs was in a Ben Fold song. 6 a.m. day after Christmas, I throw some clothes on in the dark, the smell of cold, car seat is freezing. Burroughs was, we assume, his first time away from home for the holidays. That doesn't really have much bearing on the case, but uh, it could give you insights into his frame of mind. He's tired, he's bored, he's trying to find a way to keep awake until shift change three hours away. That's when he sees something, a bright light which appears to be falling into the forest. Being a good airman, he reports what he saw on the radio when Staff Sergeant Pennison and Airman Cabinsack come out to investigate. When they arrive, they see a light in the forest and they all go to investigate. What did they see? Let's start with the object appearing to descend into the forest. UK reporter Ian Ridpath has investigated this incident extensively and I will be drawing from his website heavily. His finding on what Burroughs saw that night go thusly, quote, British Astronomical Association Meteor, uh, Meteor Section, newsletter number four, dated 1981 February, contains a brief report on the fireball that apparently sparked the Rendlesham Forest incident. The BAA report notes that this fireball was seen at 0250 universal time plus or minus five minutes on Boxing Day in 1980 by four witnesses, locations not given, but seemingly in southern in England. In that bare information lies the genesis of one of the most celebrated UFO cases of all time. Given the coincidence of timing, it seems that the 3 a.m. fireball is what the security guards saw and misinterpreted. So if it is important to realize that nothing came down in the Rendlesham Forest. Critically, though, the security guards thought that something had come down, so they went out into the forest expecting to find it. Hence, they would have been in a state of mind to misinterpret any unknown light, unquote. Another Air Force cop, Richard Bertolino, told an interviewer in 2009 that he was on duty the night of the original incident on December 26, 1980, and saw that night, around the time that it happened, what to him was clearly a meteor fireball, that, and then later on remembers the calls coming across the radio about a UFO. So, Penniston, Burroughs, and maybe Cabin Sack, the statements differ on exactly who went where and what and saw what in the woods. They all went in looking for what they termed at the time to be a downed aircraft. Look, I know this sounds crazy, but... Look, I guarantee goddamn you, someone out there before they walked into the woods was already talking about it being a UFO. Why? Because it was the middle of the night in a place where no aircraft were flying and because a UFO was a lot more fun to go look for than a downed airplane. Again, I have to keep pointing out how fucking boring it is being an Air Force cop and the lengths they will go to for entertainment. Once in the woods, Penniston and Burroughs see the light. A reddish-yellow light that appeared and disappeared seemingly at random in the fog. Low to the ground, it seemed to shift and move as if under some intentional control. What the fuck 
fuck is that? No one could come up with an answer for it that night, but then none of the people involved were from that part of Suffolk. If they had been from Suffolk near Ipswich, they would have known exactly what they were looking at. Lighthouse. Now you see why I've been making lighthouse jokes for two episodes. It was a lot of build-up for very, very little payoff. Ian Ridpath discovered this information back in 1983. We needed a story on the sighting for the Guardian newspaper. Quote, I went in search of local opinions about the case. I made contact by telephone with a forester, Vince Thurkettle, who lives within a mile of the alleged UFO landing site, though he now lives in Norfolk. Immediately, I was brought down to earth. I don't know anyone around here who believes that anything strange happened that night, he told me. So what did he think the flashing white was in Rendlesham Forest? I was astonished by his reply. It's a lighthouse, he said. That lighthouse lies at Orford Ness on the Suffolk coast, five miles from the forest. Thurkettle plotted on the map the direction in which the airmen reported seeing their flashing UFO and found that they were looking straight into the lighthouse beam, unquote. Ridpeth then took a camera crew out to Rendlesham Forest and met up with his local and sure enough, quote, Sure enough, the lighthouse beam seemed to hover a few feet above ground level because the Rindlesham Forest is higher than the coastline. The light seemed to move around as we moved, and it looked close, only a few hundred yards away among the trees. All of this matched the airman's description of the UFO. That is disappointing. But wait, Dave, I hear you saying... What about the craft Penniston and Burroughs saw in the woods? Surely that was no light from the lighthouse. Penniston even sketched it out in his notebook and swore to it in his statement from the time. What do you say to that, Mr. Skeptic Man? Big important science man, so prim and proper. Penniston's statement from the night of the 26th said he was about 60 feet or so from Burroughs when he saw the object in the distance at about, about 50 meters. That's about 150 feet. In dense, foggy conditions. The object was illuminated at just above ground level and intermittently with red and blue lights at 5 to 10 second intervals. Clearly, nothing could explain something like red and blue lights flashing like that but a UFO. Or a police car. Yeah, exactly the kind of emergency strobes on top of a security police vehicle at Bentwaters Woodbridge in 1980. Again, from Ridpath's website, quote, In the summer of 2003, a former United States Air Force military policeman at Woodbridge, Kevin Conde, claimed on television and in the press that the Rendlesham Forest UFO case was sparked by a practical joke he staged in his police car to frighten the guard at the East Gate. It was fertile ground for a practical joke, and practical jokes are a tradition in the security police, Conde explained. There was this one guy at the back gate, and he was known as a bit of a problem. He was always seeing things, Conde told the Daily Mail. It always turned out that it was a star or something. So I decided to play a practical joke. I drove down the taxiway in my car. I stuck the spotlight on after sticking red and green lenses on it. Then I drove around in circles in the fog with the PA loudspeakers going, flashing my lights. It wasn't a UFO. It was a 1979 Plymouth Volari, a standard-issue American police car. Conde says that he drove along the Woodbridge runway. Whereas the lights reported by the security guards were in the forest, additionally, Conde was not evidently aware when he made his claim that sightings stretched over two nights and involved the lights that were nowhere near the airbase. However, Conde did provide one significant clue when he noted, it was a good stunt. Someone else may have repeated it. In fact... 
most good cop practical jokes did get repeated, unquote. And boy, did they ever. Practical jokes on post were a great fucking way to pass the time. And they were usually at the expense of the new guys, which both Penniston and Burroughs were at the time. In my first base, it was common practice to take new troops out to an old cemetery and instruct them to go out and do a visibility check. The senior person on patrol would instruct the new guy to leave his weapon in the truck and walk out about 100 feet into the graveyard and wave his flashlight over his head. And that's when the other cops would pop out from behind headstones making spooky noises and send on the new guy screaming back to the truck for his gun. While everyone laughed and laughed and laughed. Oh yeah, ha ha ha, real funny man. And the jokes as juveniles they sound often involve senior NCOs who planned and coordinated things for maximum effect. It wasn't unusual to have five or six people who really ought to know better involved in these pranks and sometimes they got out of hand. Like the one night at my first base, a nuke base, a red light ghost chase, meaning someone was fucking around with a red lens on their flashlight in the alert nuclear aircraft parking area, damn near caused a full base recall to sweep the nuclear alert parking ramps for the ghost. The captain in charge of the ship was fucking furious when she found out because she was so close to making the call for a full response. So yeah, do I think the first night was a combination of seeing strange lights and someone fucking around with a new guy's penicillin and burrow, be it Conde or someone else? Abso-fucking-lutely. I think this is what happened, and unfortunately for everyone involved, it got out of hand. Which brings us to Lieutenant Colonel Halt. Because nothing good ever comes out of getting the officers involved. Let's listen to Colonel Halt explain what happened in his own words from a History Channel documentary. My name is Colonel Charles Halt. In 1980, I was the deputy base commander at RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge, England. At that time, Bentwaters was the largest tactical fighter wing in the free world. And our mission as a key NATO installation was to be prepared should anything happen. Early in the morning of the 26th of December, I went in to collect the police blotters. That's the chronological list of what happened the previous 24 hours. And as I walked into the office, the on-duty desk sergeant started to laugh. He said, Colonel, you're not going to believe this. Last night, three of our policemen were out in the forest chasing UFOs. They called in and thought they saw a donned aircraft. They went out and investigated, and they had some type of an experience. They said, we'll put something into the blotter to the effect that they saw some lights, and we'll leave it at that for now. That desk sergeant ought to be fucking slapped, because what had been up until this point had been a pretty good joke. Now it became a problem, because now... You gotta put it in the blotter. Speaking from experience, if something goes in the blotter, it officially happened. So, whenever possible, you work really, really hard to keep shit out of the blotter. Halt having this put in the blotter did make a certain kind of sense. After all, U.S. forces went off base to investigate in the British territory. The local police were notified of the incident shortly after it happened. So Halt probably decided to include it just to cover asses. But then... Lights were seen again on the night of the 26th, and someone had to make some decision, and that someone was the lieutenant in charge of the shift, the person that should never be making decisions ever. And the lieutenant decided to go see Halt at the Christmas party, which resulted in nothing being found, probably because the weather was clear and the visibility is good, but now this was a serious thing. In a 2010 interview with journalist David Clark, Colonel Conrad, the base commander, details what transpired between the night of the 26th and the night of the 27th going into the morning of the 28th. Quote, 
Frankly, at this point, Lieutenant Colonel Halt and I were discussing what level of involvement was required for my office. We knew that silence would likely lead to allegation of cover-up. With the rumor mill already operating, it was a matter of time before the press got the story. We did not want the press to report the appearance of misinformation or cover-up. We decided that a brief in-house investigation was in order. If we could find any credible evidence to justify a request for more high-tech investigators, then we would be in a position to pass the entire episode on to the British authorities. If any meaningful evidence were not found, we would document that fact, close the entire episode by providing our flax to authorities in a low-key manner. Events dictated the latter approach. The rest of December 27, 1980, saw Lieutenant Colonel Halt assemble our meager assets. This were a Geiger counter, a starlight scope, a night vision device, and a trained SP investigator out at the site in Rendlesham Forest. The investigation lasted until late in the evening when the site was, when the site was starlight scoped, after which we all went home except Lieutenant Colonel Halt and some unknown security police. This was the night of Halt's famous audio tape, unquote. Nothing Halt saw on the night of the 27th in the morning of the 28th cannot be explained simply and succinctly. I go back to Ian Ridpath. Quote, he took radiation readings, which were background levels. He saw a flashing light in the direction of Orford Ness, but was unable to identify it. Colonel Halt reported seeing star-like objects that twinkled and hovered for hours like stars. The brightest of these, which at times appeared to send down beams of light, was in the direction of Sirius the brightest star in the sky. At its most basic, the case comes down to a misinterpretation of a series of nocturnal lights, a fireball, a lighthouse, and some stars. Such misidentifications are standard fare for ufology. It is only the concatenation of three different stimuli that makes it exceptional, unquote. The landing marks on the ground were where rabbits had scraped to sleep the night. The gash marks on the trees and down branches... Foresters culling marks on the trees suitable for clearing. And the radiation was exactly the levels you would find in normal readings in that area. And the lights were lighthouses and stars. Pretty standard, really. So why did Halt think he saw a UFO? Well, Halt was neither a pilot nor a combat officer. He was amped up on what he considered credible statements by troops he trusted. He's in the woods at night and starts seeing the lighthouse, which he has no frame of reference to know is a lighthouse. He sees physical evidence that seems to support what he's being told by witnesses and sees the Geiger counter ticking where it logically shouldn't be, according to his expert. I haven't seen any evidence that Halt was involved in radiological work or the, or the people that were with him were, but he does have it as green chemistry, so who knows? And also, according to Rick Ridpath, their Geiger counter wasn't even the kind intended for doing the kind of work they were using it for that night. Quote, My earlier inquiries had shown that the radiation monitor used by Halt and his team would have been of the type known as the ANPDR-27. On behalf of Frank Close, the NRPB contacted the American manufacturer of the ANPDR-27, who stated that Halt's peak measurements of 0.1 was the bottom reading on the lowest range of the monitor, and it was of little or no significance. They noted further that these instruments are designed to be used to monitor workplace fields or radiation levels after a sizable nuclear incident and are therefore not suitable for environmental monitoring at background levels, unquote. But... If you hear the clicks going on at a Geiger counter when you've grown up with the associations of Geiger counters like Hulk clearly had, you're going to hear it and start getting nervous. 
None of this discredits Halt, who seems to legitimately believe he encountered something that night, but nothing he encountered that night cannot be explained with just perfectly normal observations of perfectly normal events. And Halt was missing one critical piece of information that would have changed his entire perception of the night, and that's how Air Force cops routinely fucking try to lie their way out of trouble. And before you get your panties all up in a twist and start saying, how dare I besmirch the honor of the United States Air Force and the security police, security forces career field, fuck you, you obviously never have been a fucking Air Force cop and probably have never been in the military because I was a troop and I lied to my supervisors. I was a supervisor and my troops lied to me. We all lied to the flight chief, and the flight chief lied to the lieutenants and who were the shift commanders, and the shift commanders lied to the ops officer, and the ops officer lied to the commander who was the chief of security police, and the chief of security police lied to the base commander. The base commander lied to the wing commander. The wing commander lied to the numbered Air Force commander. The numbered Air Force commander lied to the major command commander, and the major command commander lied to the joint chiefs of staff who lied to the secretary of defense who lied to the president, and the president lies to the people. That's how shit gets done in the military. Halt's memo, completed some two weeks after the incident, already contains some inaccuracies as to dates and times, and definitely displays witness creep, where the witnesses of events start adding elements taken from other sources other than their own recollection. Again, this is normal. It's widely known, and it is an attack on Halt. Colonel Conrad, in his 2010 interview with David Clark, summarized the event thusly. Quote, after all that, we found no hard evidence. In my judgment, further investigation would likely gain us nothing but notoriety. We summed up what we had, and Lieutenant Colonel Halt composed a letter to the wing commander, Don Moreland, the British base commander, RAF liaison officer, who was away on leave during the holidays, Christmas holiday, leaving it up to him if he thought it was necessary to forward any of the information onto the Ministry of Defense. It was my intention to suggest that we would be happy if the whole thing died there. There were no conspiracies, no secret operations, no missile accident, and no harsh interrogations by the OSI. If I have any regrets, it's just, uh, I should have challenged Lieutenant Colonel Halt's account of the events on the night of 28 December. However, since I wanted to avoid the appearance of shape in the story, I was reluctant to require any changes to his letter to Don Moreland. Unquote. What happened at Bentwater's? was just really bad luck for a lot of fucking people. I firmly believe that the first night was cops fucking around playing jokes on each other that got blowed up real good when the base brass got involved. I believe people started trying to bullshit their way out of it and only succeeded in making things worse, and then a bunch of people spooked themselves into chasing ghosts in the woods at night. Nothing in the primary and secondary documents support any other conclusion. The base commander basically says this is what he thinks in his interview with Clark. Quote, the search for an explanation could go many places, including the perpetration of a clever hoax. Unquote. And it just fucking fits with everything I know about Air Force cops from the time and presumably today. It just feels right. And if it feels right and matches the evidence, you have at least a plausible explanation for what happened that Christmas in Suffolk. What about the other shit? The missing time, coded messages, strange flying lights, radar sightings. By the way, there were no actual radar sightings. Do not believe what you read in UFO blogs. Ridpath and Clark both confirmed there were no radar contacts on the night in question. Why do Pennison and Burroughs and Halt all now maintain there were crafts, cover-ups, and conspiracies? Well, 
All of those claims start about a decade after the sighting in 1980, just when the world was coming into a new spate of UFO fever. Starting in the mid-1980s, UFOs came roaring back into the pop culture zeitgeist. Quite a little vocabulary he has there. As mass media expanded and it became easier for people to create their own content, UFOs and UFO conspiracies fit neatly into the narrative of government distrust that came roaring out of the 70s because you couldn't trust the government. Cable television needed shows to fill the expanded schedules, and the UFO documentaries were cheap to make and good, got good ratings. By the 1990s, there was a full-on UFO economy. Books, magazines, lecture circuits, television appearances. You weren't going to get rich on the UFO circuit, but you could make a little money and get a little fame. And then along came the X-Files in 1993, and shit blew up. You didn't need to believe in little green men to embrace the culture of UFOs the same way you don't need to dress up like the Green Lantern to go to Comic-Con. And then came the internet. And that's when we really started to see the Rendlesham Extended Universe blossom. We got binary messages, missing times, conspiracy theories, truth serum, government cover-ups, none of which were talked about by the witnesses prior to the mid-1990s and the early 2000s. Am I saying Halt, Peniston, and Burroughs and the rest just started making shit up to cash in on their narrow window of fame and fortune? No! Uh, you kind of are. Okay, yes I am, but I'm not saying they're intentionally lying about it. They remember these things happening because that's what the brain does. It takes little pieces of what happened and over the years superglues subsequent events, feelings, external information onto those memories until your brain is convinced you saw a UFO that gave you a message in binary cone with the fucking coordinates for Sedona fucking Arizona. And if you can make a few hundred bucks talking about it, well, what's the harm? But to me... Ex-Air Force Security Police Senior Airman Bledsoe, Military Working Dog Handler, Slacker, Layabout, and Consummate Bullshitter, this story was never about UFOs and aliens. It was, and always will be, a cautionary tale about letting on-post pranks get out of hand and letting officers get involved in anything. The second Lieutenant Colonel Halt decided to investigate this, People went into ass-covering mode from the bottom to the top of the cop shop. Things were embellished. Lies were told. Cover stories manufactured and statements carefully crafted to admit nothing, deny everything, and make counter-accusations in the finest tradition of the defenders of the forest. One ball bearing got broken, one ball bearing got lost, and one ball bearing was in the pocket of someone who didn't own said ball bearing. The base chain of command likely figured this out a few days later and likely constructed a story of their own to minimize the stupidity of everyone involved and avoid embarrassing the wing, the base, the and the United States Air Force, hoping it would all go away. Rumors started leaking. Politics unrelated to UFOs got involved. And the story mutated into the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident we know today. And after people left the service, they liked the attention and maybe the little bit of money. So they started telling versions designed to please their audience. And voila, you have the story that I have told you in two parts this month. But no matter what, those ball bearings ain't never coming back. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. And the spooktacular 2020. Another spooky season is drawn to a close, pod friends. 
And I've managed to spend a month not talking about the election and the general state of the world because you and I know some things are just too fucking scary even for the spooktacular. You know what you've got to do tomorrow if you're hearing this when we're dropping this in the general feed? I don't want to be doing any more tear-soaked fucking special editions like I did four years ago. The tear stains are still in my pop filter, so go out and fucking vote for Joe Biden, okay? And that's all I have to say about that. Speaking of boxes of chocolates, which we weren't really, but go with me on this, rate and review the show wherever you get your pods. It helps others find the show and take the chalky from the Whitman sampler of our archive only to find out that they've been into a hard-ass fucking toffee crunch and hurt their teeth. Follow the show on the socials at the hell underscore podcast on Twitter and what the hell podcast on Facebook for all the cherry cordials of my wisdom. If you've got a buck and like your pods with ad- without ads and early, patreon.com slash what the hell podcast, and you get cool extras, early shows, and cool ass swag. If you donate, I will even let you pick out the caramel from the Whitman's box. All the shows are in one place inside a yellow box covered with paper and a neatly shaped plastic tray at whatthehellpodcast.com. We are a member of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network, bringing the latest news from middle-aged white dudes and 90s Nickelodeon stars all in one place. So for me, Senior Airman Dave, if you're going to be asking me these questions, I'm really going to need some JAG Council Bledsoe, producer Squadron Leader St. James reporting top. And all the fictional off-going post-patrols return to Station for Relief, we want to say, now you see, Sarge, I know you think you caught me red-handed, grooving on the bathroom floor with my girlfriend but actually what had happened was it wasn't me and even if it was um our clothes fell off while we were both practicing our apprehension and restraint techniques and you really should go with that because it's going to be a lot less paperwork if you just accept that lie we'll see you all next week What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.